Security is so important moving forward, it's it's the difference between making or breaking your organisation. If you're not doing the right things, you're going to get in trouble and it's going to cause you impact. We've had a couple of companies call us and say, hey Dan, we found something in our data centre, it's making this god-awful noise, what is this thing? It ends up being an ant miner or some other crypto coin mining device that someone had put in their data centre. Now that's actually making some coin. Hello and welcome to Explain It, brought to you by SoftCat the show for IT professionals by IT professionals that aims to simplify the complex and often overcomplicated bits of enterprise IT without compromising on detail. In this episode, we're going to take a look at the big security trends from the last 12 months. And with me to help is Matt Helling, who is SoftCat's Head of Cybersecurity Services. Matt, thanks for joining us. Just give me a brief explanation about what being the Head of Cybersecurity Services at SoftCat means. Sure. So SoftCat is an organization that investing quite heavily into our cybersecurity services organizations. So we've been running a security services practice about eight years now with our checkpoint managed firewall. What we're doing now is we're investing heavily into other areas of cybersecurity services to help customers mitigate risk and produce a security maturity model. And for every guest that we now have on the show, we are asking them to bring an interesting fact. So Matt, what is your interesting fact? Interesting fact. So I only ever take cold showers and cold baths. Why would you only ever take cold showers and cold baths? Because I'm partly sadistic and I also think that uh, we've just become a bit soft living in nice air-conditioned offices with nice warm baths. So... I like to try and push myself and, and I also side benefit it wakes me up in the morning which is quite a feat I'm like a bear yeah. <laughs> fair enough and also to help us we've got Dan Wiley who is Checkpoint Software's Head of Incident Response Dan thank you so much for joining us today and Dan can you just give us a brief explanation about what you do at Checkpoint Yes, uh, I run the incident response team uh, globally for Checkpoint, and we help customers deal with any cyber event that they might have. Uh, so things like ransomware, DDoS, hacking, extortion kind of events. And we do this in a real-time mode. So if you call us right now, the boys will answer, and we start helping customers immediately to deal with their incident. Awesome. And... Um Dan, we ask all of our guests to come with an interesting fact. So, what is your interesting fact? I love building things. Specifically, I like Lego sets. Taking a week off and putting together one of these amazing sets and uh, and taking it all apart and giving it away and doing it all over again. What is the most interesting thing you've ever built? I mean, I definitely like uh, a number of the sets right now. I just built the uh, Porsche 911 uh, Turbo. And then uh, also the Sydney Opera House. Those are recent I am looking forward to the, the new model. Does the Porsche drive? Not quite, uh, but it does. The doors open and the hood opens. It's got a good It does. So let's crack on with the podcast. Dan, I'm going to start with you. What have been some of the big security trends that you've seen over the last 12 months? Well, specifically, we've seen uh, you know a number, and they're all big impact kind of events. Uh, we're seeing advanced ransomware attacks that are very targeted, very uh, very advanced, that are uh, targeting customers uh, to extort money from them. Uh, we're seeing application cloud attacks that are uh, attacking things like Office 365 or Salesforce. Uh, we're also seeing things, uh, specifically uh, attacks against uh, infrastructures, so things like AWS or Azure. Uh, we're seeing a very large amount of phishing uh, attacks, uh, mostly going after credentials, 
but then also uh, using that elevated permissions to uh, send uh, man in the email attacks. And then uh, we're also seeing uh, RDP, remote desktop uh, compromises across uh, customers' environments. So the first thing we talked about was the advanced ransomware, um, social media ransom targeting, that kind of thing. Can you just give us some examples, some recent examples of where that's happened and what, and what maybe the organization, who that happened to, what, what do they do in that situation? We just re- recently worked a case for a manufacturer in the United States. They make plastic widgets, lots of them. Uh, this company has a global footprint. Uh, they have manufacturing in the United States, in the Netherlands, uh, France, uh, a couple other places around the world. Uh, they called our incident response hotline and basically said, hey, uh, my entire infrastructure has been encrypted. Oh, my goodness. What do you do in that situation? Well, the first thing to do is uh, try to remain calm. <laughs> <laughs> Don't panic. Don't panic. Mind the gap. <laughs> Just psychologically, if you think about it, if you're the head of IT and, and uh, you walk in one morning and everything's encrypted, you panic in a lot yep. of ways, right? So one of the first things that our team does is actually talk the customer down from the ledge and we'll say, well, look, guys, it's going to be tough. It's a long road. But we'll get through it. How many people just pay it on the assumption that the, the nice hackers are going to get everything back? So there's an interesting trend that's going on around paying the ransom. Uh, the company itself typically does not want to pay the ransom. Mm. And I, I actually agree with them. I don't think it's a wise move, right? You're just encouraging bad behavior in a lot of ways. It's, yeah. a, it's an economic model that you're just perpetuating. But in a lot of cases, the customer doesn't have a choice. It's cost of downtime to your business as well, right? So it's specific to the organization that's been hit. Well, that's one angle. But the other angle is they're not the ones making the decision. It's now the insurance companies. Sure. So now if you have an insurance policy and you call the insurance policy holder and, or the, 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 the company and say, hey, uh, I have a ransomware event. One of the first things the insurance company will do is negotiate with the attacker to pay the ransom because it's cheaper to pay the ransom than it is yeah. to actually restore the infrastructure. As you said, that, that encourages the wrong behavior, doesn't it? Amen, baby. But then I suppose once you've got your infrastructure back, you can understand how they got in. You can mitigate that, that risk moving forward. And that's where the insurance company will say, okay, we've paid the ransom. You're up and running. Now you need to go evolve your security infrastructure. And that's one of the areas that our team at uh, the Checkpoint Incident Response Team uh, actually prides itself on is the ability to actually rapidly restore and, in- and introduce new controls to mitigate it from ever happening again. Yeah. Because uh, we do know that most of the infrastructures that have these kind of events do not have any security controls that could actually protect against it. Mm-hmm. So there's a number. And uh, let me go through a couple of those. The first thing is you need some decent email protection, right? So that includes sandboxing, right? Yep. Emulate those files, clean them, scrub them, do something with those files before you deliver them. That's one of the key things. Uh, the other thing to really consider is an advanced EDR type solution, uh, um, you know, advanced endpoint yep. technology that isn't uh, based on signatures alone, but is also based on uh, behavioral uh, uh, controls. So, so that's just like the traditional antivirus, but but better, basically. It's looking for the unknown stuff. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And behavior of the endpoint. So rather than, as you said, the signature, the old school way of doing it, which mm-hmm. is, you know, these are all the viruses that are out there, something that can actually figure out what's going on and do it intelligently. Yeah. Yep. Uh, most of the uh, things that we see are polymorphic. So signatures are completely useless. Cool so word. Yeah. Poly- <laughs> <laughs> it, it is. Uh, it's very cool, actually. If you, if, uh, you know, from a technical point of view, polymorphic code is actually really, really cool. It just changes on every single delivery. How does it do that? 
uh, programmatically. So uh, when it's delivered through uh, uh, phishing emails, uh, the file attachment will be unique every single time based on some iteration, some, some, some sort of code that modifies it in some way. So that way, any signature-based technology... You can never write a signature for it, bingo. essentially. Yeah. Yeah. You have to study it. You have to actually see it in a, in a sandbox... Uh, or see how it executes to determine if it looks funky or not. And you talked about social media ransom. How does that work? How does that differ to traditional ransomware? So just recently, we've seen a really interesting trend. Um, One of our customers called us and said, uh, we just got a ransom uh, email uh, basically indicating that they would uh, mess with our social media footprint. But specifically, uh, this company was selling widgets on Amazon. And the attacker was uh, threatening to start manipulating the uh, reviews and the, uh, uh, the, the, the rating of the product, which in Amazon world, if you don't have five stars, man, it's a big deal. And they proved it. Uh, they actually introduced, you know, like a 1% variance in their, uh, their ratings uh, you know, through the email. And they basically said, hey, look, we just manipulated it by 1%. If you don't pay us the ransom, we're going to manipulate it by 99%. You know, comparing that to a traditional ransomware attack where it's your own infrastructure. So essentially you have the control over that, don't you? you as you said, you can put protection in place. You could, you know, you could even have a, a duplicate copy of your environment that just spins up whatever. You could spend tons and tons of money to try and protect yourself against it. But this social media or, or e-commerce ransomware attack where it's someone else's platform, there's basically nothing you can do about it. You can't, you can't buy products necessarily, can you? So the funny thing is, is uh, we now live in a world of bots versus bots, right? So now we have bots fighting bots with some more bots, have some more bots. For it's a bit Terminator, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a little Terminator-y. Uh, but what we've done is, uh, for this case in particular, uh, there was a, a component of this that was related to uh, Twitter. And uh, we've been actually working with a number of uh, uh, smaller companies that have the ability to actually track bots that have been programmed to attack you and actually identify them and take them down at an astonishing rate. We also have seen other companies, we haven't quite done this yet, that would actually do the opposite of what the bad guy's doing, but add more positive reviews <laughs> instead of <laughs> negative reviews. So you can get to this Equal world. yourself out. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So your bots versus bots. And are the, 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 the social networks or platforms, are they doing anything about it? Do they yeah, know that it's happening? They are. Uh, I mean, uh, Facebook and Twitter in particular have uh, been both mandated by uh, EU and US authorities that they need to go look at this problem. Uh, they're looking at it. <laughs> they're, they are taking down a lot of the uh, more... Uh, social activist side of the the uh, the bots. I think there's uh, whole other layers of bots that need to have a, a bigger dialogue. You know, so I know companies that monitor Twitter feeds, for example, for customer service satisfaction. For example, mm. a lot of those are bots. Are those good or bad bots? How do you identify between the two? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So maybe at some point, you know, we'll need to have a little uh, friendly bot icon, but we do need to have a bigger dialogue around what we want to accept as reality and not. And it's an interesting conversation. The next thing on the list that you talked about was the application cloud attacks. Give us some examples of, of when that's happened to organizations that you've worked with. A few weeks ago, we had a customer call us and said, uh, hey, Dan, um, we've all of a sudden lost all of our customers. I'm like, what do you mean, lost your customers? Where'd they go? <laughs> uh, he's like, no, they, they've all moved to a competitor. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. 
well, let's dive into this and start looking at what was what's going on. And uh, we start talking to the customer and we ended up putting together a really interesting conversation. The victim uh, organization had uh, about a year and a half ago moved to Salesforce. And in their haste to move to Salesforce, they basically just used their normal AD credentials. Uh, we identified uh, a number of accounts that had been compromised uh, inside of their Active Directory infrastructure and then had been used to log into the Salesforce mm-hmm. website. One of those accounts in particular uh, was an executive salesperson. And we noticed that uh, everything from Salesforce was downloaded by that executive multiple times over the year. We then uh, started looking within the organization's uh, footprint inside of the deep and dark web, and I'll be damned, we found a posting that someone was selling all of their infrastructure on the deep and dark web. We interface with the bad guy and find out uh, what he was selling. After a couple conversations and a, a couple of virtual beers, as I call them. Hang on, hang on, hang on. What's a virtual beer? <laughs> you can't Let's just fund the real beer. You can't just drop that one in. What's a virtual beer? Well, it's our little acronym to try to get uh, someone on your side. You know, just to try to befriend them to a level where they trust you. For example, uh, usually after a couple pints, you are more willing to share things. So in this case, uh, one of our our uh, analysts was able to, after many many conversations, convince the the person. Uh, to spill the beans a little bit and come to find out he sold that information to a company. We didn't know exactly which company, but then we mapped all of this out and we were able to identify that uh, the victim's biggest competitor had bought all of that information off the deep and dark web and was starting to use that to gain uh, market share by going to their customers and targeting them. What's the the legal question? Surely that's when you get the blue lights flashing and the police knocking on your door sure if you're in the right country right and they weren't in the right countries so if it's the uk versus china what are you going to do sure nothing because you have no legal recourse whatsoever yeah absolutely can we just talk about then the mechanics of that attack why in particular is it the fact that there's a cloud platform why why is there a specific vulnerability around that i call it the golden egg syndrome uh, you use these cloud platforms and you don't realize that you're putting all your golden eggs into those platforms yeah so with Office 365, uh, it is if you gave me access to your Office 365 infrastructure for just you know a day, I'd be able to wreck your entire organization. Mm. But that's the point: is that you've now put all your golden eggs into things like Salesforce or Office 365, and yep. with great power comes great, great, great responsibility to secure it, and they're not equal. Mm. I mean, p- but presumably, you know these these. Um these platforms are so useful to organizations, aren't they? So is the answer to not go to these platforms or is there something that an organization can do to protect themselves or to to mitigate as much of this risk as possible? There absolutely is additional that you can do on those platforms. The problem and the disconnect is, is that you don't realize that you need to add some of the traditional security yeah. controls that you've just tried to give up because you've Same moved Same as a DevOps the, conversation, yes. isn't it? It's about going in there with a bit of awareness and a plan. Amen. You know, specifically, uh, do you guys see Google now has uh, USB fobs and uh, NFC fobs that no. they handed out to mm. all of the people that are doing large cloud deployments inside of Google? You know why? No. 
because people were stealing those credentials and spinning up infrastructure without permission. So Google is even now offering a $50 uh, FOB that you can buy. Uh, you can get, uh, you know, two-factor for O365. You can yep. get two-factor for AWS. But there's expense and cost, uh, both in uh, operational component and technical components when, when you deploy these things. And most companies don't realize that the security you get at base, you know, at the baseline is only so good. Mm. You need to add on additional security components into those infrastructures. And they usually learn those lessons too late. You talked about two-factor authentication. Is that something that is undefeatable? Oh, it absolutely is defeatable. Everything's defeatable. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the problem, isn't it? There isn't a silver bullet to this. No, there stuff. is not. But it brings the uh, level of uh, effort up a notch. And uh, especially when it comes to two-factor, that's uh, it actually levels it up maybe two or three notches. And there's a lot of effort involved to be able to get that second factor. I will make some recommendations when it comes to two-factor. They need to be wholly isolated from each other. Yep. So using your mobile phone with your banking app that SMSs you your second factor is not going to cut it. It's not a second factor. That is not a second factor. <laughs> That's like a 1.5 factor. Yeah. Uh, what you really need to do is separate the two devices completely, Yeah. right? And either that's a physical device, something that you are, or something that you have mm. that's separate from the connection that you're making. Like those old school tokens. Like tokens. Yeah. 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 Yep. Do you not think with biometrics, stuff like that, retina reading is going to get better? Because it's harder to fabricate that sort yeah, of The stuff. biggest problem is usability. Mm. You got to go to your grandma. If she can use it, then you've won. If she can't use it, then you might as well give up. Yeah, fair. We, we, we certainly see people's reluctance to roll out tokens is, is getting higher and higher. People would rather leverage yep. software services that are available on their phone. And again, I think it's not completely, un, not unfortunate to use your phone, but you have to keep it separate. Mm. Keep it separated. You know, I think there's a song around. <laughs> okay, so we talked uh, application cloud attacks. Let's talk infrastructure cloud attacks then. So can you give some examples of where organizations have been susceptible to infrastructure cloud attacks? This actually goes right back to our DevOps conversation too. A very large uh, company in the United States was starting an advertisement campaign and one of their executives decided that they wanted to use AWS to do this uh, advertisement campaign. This was a number of years ago. And they worked with their internal IT team and said, hey guys, I want to replicate our web infrastructure inside of AWS and I want to host our advertisement campaign out there. Make it happen. Make it so. So uh, the IT team goes to AWS they get everything up and running. They do S3 buckets. They do elastic load balancing. They do all kinds of cool stuff. They mm. get the most bang for the buck out of AWS, and they hit go. The advertisement is a great success, right? The initial deployment, everything's great. The uh, guy who was operating the infrastructure on day two uh, logs in, and he looks at the uh, console, and he sees that it's grown. Uh, and specifically, they had turned on uh, the elastic... Um, elasticity of the environment so be be able to actually spin up new instances yep. uh the third day he logs in and it double in size and you know he's like well okay we had a great advertisement campaign i don't know what the aws infrastructure really you know performance wise what it's all about yeah it's probably fine the <laughs> next day it was 32x right so now it's grown like massively at this point he's like yeah i don't know if this is okay or not 
and also uh, costing a fortune. That's it's costing a pretty penny. <laughs> uh, but anyway, he finally gives us a call after he looked at the process table of his Linux servers and he found a binary that he had no clue what it was. So he sent us the binary and we called him back and we said, "Yeah, this sucker is uh, crypto mining right now." Yeah. And uh, it's also configured to be able to do an external DDoS attack. And, oh, by the way, it sure looks like the bad guy was about to uh, change your GIF with a piece of malware. Oh. Triple whammy. Oh, bummer, dude. (laughs) Uh, So then we started looking at, well, what was the source of the attack? Well, in their haste, the very key component of this is they basically just copied their infrastructure from their traditional data center into AWS, Mm. which included, uh, by default... Uh, that the admin interface to Apache was open. And they had forgotten that since they moved inside of AWS, there was no firewall. There was just some access lists, and they had forgotten how to configure those access lists because it wasn't the security guys who was configuring it. It was the web dude. And uh, it was exposed directly to the Internet. So all bad guy had to do was do a quick port scan for 8080 or whatever port it was sitting on. Found that vulnerable port, uh, found that there was a Java library buffer overflow, popped it, loaded the binary, and went on his merry way. And kept doing it. And uh, since the uh, the infrastructure was automatically uh, replicating and... Uh, yeah, it's got unlimited CPU. Exactly. It, spot it. Uh, it, uh, it basically just spawned itself. And away it went. All those Christmases came at once. <laughs> <laughs> but that's so common. I mean, we, we talk to a lot of customers at the moment and... Like crypto mining doesn't really fall that high on their risk register or their concerns until it is a problem. And, and with a lot of crypto mining, is these things try to be quite quiet and they spread themselves so thinly. It's only in these envir- in, in these instances where they get kind of carte blanche access that they will grow and grow and grow and grow and it gets to a point where they it's obviously noticeable that something's gone wrong. And people identify it, then they understand what the issue is. But a lot of the time... They just spread themselves over, so they start eating away, and they start, just start gathering a bit more power, a bit more power, a bit more power. But they almost want to go under the radar because they don't want you to notice it. Because the minute you notice it, you kick them off, and they have to go somewhere else to get that back. They just want to get as much of these little bits everywhere as humanly possible. This may sound like a really stupid question, but the the cost of Bitcoin has plummeted recently. So does that affect this? Would people go, oh, it's not really worth it anymore. Let's just try different types of attacks, or is it still like a really good money spinner? It uh, it has decreased significantly because because of the cost of Bitcoin mm-hmm. plummeting. You got to go somewhere else to make the coin. Yeah, <laughs> literally in this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I don't see. I mean, I still see. There's more it. than one crypto currency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. tons of them. Look, I think it's uh, ebb and flow, right? So right this millisecond, yeah, there's still some crypto mining uh, events out there, but uh, the overwhelming of it, um, overwhelming events that we see are the ransomware events. Sure, and because uh, they actually pay. But what we do see, and we've had a number of these conversations, is uh, we've had a couple companies call us and say, hey, Dan, we found something in our data center. It's making this god-awful noise. What is this thing? And they take a picture and they send it to us, and it ends up being an ant miner or some other crypto coin mining device that someone put in their data center. Now, that's actually making some coin. Hang on a second. So they snuck into said data center. Yes. Put in... So, I mean, they're, they're getting free power free connectivity um and i guess like power connectivity are the two most expensive things and you're just putting in this device in we were working a case uh here in europe uh, the customer that called us uh didn't uh, notify us the moment they identified these devices so they found these devices and they took them out of the rack 
And uh, then they called us and said, hey, what are these things? And in their haste, um, they'd remove them for a couple days. So being able to identify the person that actually did it was going to be a little bit of a challenge for us. But what we were able to do is reverse engineer uh, the account that was used to upload the coins that this coin miner had created. And we were able to identify the password that they'd used. And the password was uh, like Mazda 6XTX whatever. Some very, <laughs> red, it, sorry, it was red Mazda and a very specific. <laughs> look out the window in the car park. Exactly. <laughs> so we sent the IT guy and we just told him walk around the parking lot to find a red Mazda 6 <laughs> with, you know, this specific kind. And I'll be damned, there it was. And he just waited there for a few hours for someone to turn up and it was their head IT guy. He's doing nothing malicious. He's just taking a bit of power, a bit of connectivity. $250,000 worth of power over a three-month period. I'll take that back. These suckers use up some serious juice. But wow. if they had the password and the wallet, did they just take the Bitcoins back? Uh, so I, at that point... Uh, just disappear into thin air. We, uh, <laughs> we basically uh, stepped aside. I, uh, so in the country we were working on, if you actually have possession of someone's usernames and password and you still use it without permission, you're still going to get in trouble. Mm. So short answer is we recommended that they didn't log in and take the Bitcoins for payment. Uh, because it actually wouldn't be enough to pay for the power. Because wow. at the time, the, the price had plummeted it already again. So for these infrastructure cloud attacks, what can an organization do to protect themselves? Yeah, so uh, Dev, DevSecOps and the traditional IT guys need to get in a room and make some babies. Uh, essentially, they need to <laughs> <laughs> add their security controls that uh, you typically don't think you need, but you still need. Duh. You know, layer seven. IPS. I yep. know it's old school. I know I feel sound like an old fuddy-duddy, you know. Look, it has its place, mm. right? I don't care which SecOps mantra you uh, you are praying to. Uh, if you don't update your Apache web server within milliseconds of a vulnerability, you're going to get screwed. Yep. So you still need some level of protection in front of that that you can actually engage while you're waiting for your dev sec ops or dev ops cycle to kick in it's not going to be instantaneous and so with this cloud infrastructure is there anything in particular that that singles it out over quote-unquote traditional infrastructure that means that actually it's, it's a lot more vulnerable well yeah yeah it's not inside of your perimeter anymore right you it, traditionally you had this huge monolithic security infrastructure but once it's out in the cloud you don't have the same thing anymore mm. right Unless you deploy in a traditional, uh, you know, gateway like ourselves or, or someone else, if you don't deploy them, they don't exist there. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so. So so a gateway is where the traffic will go through a box in your data center before it yep. goes to yep. the, um, the the AWS or or, or, or cloud infrastructure. Somewhere. Or you have a traditional gateway in front of your cloud infrastructure, right? So instead of just having a load balancer with access lists, and if anyone knows, access lists are pretty much useless. Mm. That's not enough these days, right? You need additional capabilities that give you, you know, a full firewall, a full IPS, uh, application awareness, user awareness. Without it, you don't have any ability to segment or micro-segment inside of the, those cloud infrastructures. And that's a problem. What about segmentation? I think it's vital. I mean, uh, you don't want to have everything available to attacker and have, uh, you know, no 
uh, lateral movement protection whatsoever. Mm. I will say it really depends on what architecture you're talking about, yep. right? So segmentation's great in a Unix environment, uh, Linux or something like that. Uh, but in a Windows environment, when you're still tied to AD, yeah. AD is your single largest threat vector yep. ever, period. Do you think there's a general perception that public cloud is more secure? I think that's going away. Mm. I think the, the reality is that, yes, they can run a data center better than you, but that's about it. Yep. Okay, and so the fourth thing on the list is phishing. Can you give us some examples recently where there have been some phishing attacks? Yeah, I mean, uh, again, we see hundreds of these uh, each year. Um, I kind of separate them into a couple of camps. There's the uh, using uh, phishing to be able to, to, to get as many victims or as many fish as you can into mm-hmm. your net. Uh, those are still prevalent, uh, but they're not quite as successful as they used to be because we're now able to block them at a much higher rate. And users can identify them very quickly. But the very targeted phishing attacks are still very, very uh, effective. Yep. And most of the time, uh, what we find is that uh, usually when you're having email conversations with a third party, the third parties are now a victim of these kind of attacks. I have actually a really good story about a partner of ours. Not you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I was getting a bit nervous. Eh? Yeah, no, no, no. no. <laughs> Our finance department called us and said, hey, uh, one of our partners is arguing that uh, they paid us, but we never got the payment. Mm. And uh, we looked into it a little bit more carefully, and uh, we were able to determine that the partner had outsourced their email services to Office 365. Right. And uh, their uh, finance person had their account compromised. Yep. And uh, basically, the attacker was able to convince the customer of the partner to send their payment to a different location, and you get the idea, right? Yep. So, and we see that over and over and over again, where the conversation gets twisted, a new ABA number, uh, bank routing number is introduced, and money goes bye-bye. It's, it's, it's big business, though, isn't it? I mean, if you put it into the context of <clears throat> like organized crime and ways to make money, you know, you could go through the dirty process of manufacturing drugs and shipping and selling and everything else or you could sit in a nice comfy air-conditioned room with some probably quite well mild-mannered people and make millions yep and so what can organizations do to protect themselves again you need to evolve your security controls i mean everything i say to, to the victims that we see they've made some similar mistakes number one they have not evolved their security controls yeah so that means adding additional uh controls around phishing Education around phishing is also a big one. Uh, Endpoint protection, again, all of these things combined give you a fighting chance. And if you don't have them, you don't have a chance. Interestingly, we we went to see a customer recently who had gone through a program of security improvement and maturity. Um, And as part of that, because they had been hit by a number of phishing attacks. And even post being hit and even awareness, I guess, perceivably being raised because it had been published amongst the organization, the IT director then in turn emailed his whole IT department, not outside of IT, his 60, 70 odd IT people in his department and asked for all of their username and passwords because he was changing a load of logging credentials for stuff. 40% of them responded. Then of that 40%, <laughs> so many passwords that they were using were admin admin. Hadn't been changed, hadn't been moved. He kind of just sat in this meeting and he was just flabbergasted by the fact that even post an instant and a, and a phishing attack being so, you know, so deeply hit in an organization, his IT department, the people that were perceived to be kind of leading the way in, in improving security and everything else were 
the ones that were so willing to share when somebody viewed as an authoritative figure within the department asked for all of their details. 40% of them were willing to give it over. There must be some psychology behind this. 100%. That, that needs to be... But that's what people leverage. Yeah. So you're a thousand percent right that the psychology and the, the, the society that you're in actually dictate the, the prevalence of certain attacks. So in the UK, where you have a very... How do I put it? Stiff upper lip around your uh, executive. Excuse, st- excuse me. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> around your executive class, I'll call them, uh, and a hierarchy. It's Mr. Executive class to you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Whatever. Sorry, um, carry on. <laughs> but you understand, right? The the if there is a hierarchy of authority, then and it, it's very stiff and yep. very rigid. Uh, so Germany, the UK, yep. uh, other areas, or Japan, where you know the if if it comes directly from the CEO or from a, a C level person or a VP or yep. it's like the hand of God has anointed you with a sense you of must urgency, do it now, yeah. right? Well, the best thing you could do is say, "Hey, double check that, right? You want me to wire two million bucks on a on an email? Uh, yeah. Let's double check that." But that comes with the awareness as well. And, go, and going back to your example a second ago is with the supply chain piece and people seem less or more reluctant to pick up the phone and just ask a question nowadays than ever have been. The reliance on email is so high. You know, we notice it at work when, when phones go down, everybody's fine. They can keep working. They've got mobile. When email goes down, it's almost like people sit back and put their feet up because such a reliance on email as a communication method. So, you know, the, the, I guess the easy and obvious thing to do would be to ring a contact, ring someone, you know, just verify it at a second level. But you're absolutely right. They they leverage that that social angle and they put that urgency on it that it's coming down from an authoritative figure. You have to do it now. If you don't do it now, your job's in jeopardy. You're going to lose it. And people just wet themselves and they just go for it. Why is somebody not developed email version two where you can build these controls into it or there's some sort of encryption built into it's, it's it? It's more of or? a policy process than what it is a control thing. Okay. You, you, you know, perhaps as anything over a certain amount you know you have to i i don't know there's there's number but if if the minute you get that social bit into it it's just so easy to compromise and what you do is you just then lower the level of you know instead of it being a million dollars you lower it down to 50 grand if that's anything over 50 grand if it needs you know authentication or a call you just do loads of fifty thousands. yeah and you just lower that level and there's always ways to get it well you lower it down to ten thousand you do Hundred ten thousand, yeah. and it go, it goes so under the radar. You just, they just keep because it's such easy money, and once it's out, it's out. It's no way of getting it back because it's jumped everywhere. So the last thing on the list was the RDP compromises. So can you give um, an example where an organisation had been compromised? Yeah, so City of Atlanta. Yeah, uh, um, this is public, so uh, we actually didn't work this case. It's very indicative of all the other cases that are involved uh, with RDP. Essentially, it becomes uh, a very simple conversation. An IT administrator wants to have remote access into their infrastructure. And one of the easiest ways that you can do that is to spin up a RDP uh, connection to the internet. And all that requires is to open up the right specific port and yeah. you've got access remotely. I mean, I couldn't get any simpler than that. A couple key things to remember with RDP is that it's usually joined to a domain, mm-hmm. right? And the domain usually has a username and password associated with it. And that username and password, the username in particular is usually their email address, right? Yeah. So, Dan at checkpoint.com. That's not my email. <laughs> um, that's another Dan, but he might be getting a lot of emails now. And uh, all the attacker has to do is uh, obtain that email address, load it into a botnet, 
uh, it brute force login attacks that account. And uh, most infrastructures don't turn on accounting and so on and so forth. And um, the attacker brute force logs into that device and then he has pretty much unfeathered access into the environment because it's usually one flat network and hasn't been segmented. Yep. And uh, then they move laterally and they plant ransomware and they hit go and they encrypt a whole bunch of drives and then you have a bad day. You either have to restore from backup or you pay somebody. And so how would an organization protect themselves against? Don't this? expose RDP to the <laughs> internet. Dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, it, it's not that hard, right? Uh, you can add additional security controls, right? Now, first thing, two-factor. Second thing, watch for repeated logins. If you have more than X, block the account yep. and email somebody. I mean, most of this is just simple awareness. Just open your eyes to it, that there might be someone breaking into something. So um, with RDP, I mean, could you quite feasibly just start scanning the internet for open RDP? Your favorite tool of the today is Shodan. So you can just search the internet for it. All I do is you know, type in uh, Softcat right now and see what you get. <laughs> no, please don't, please don't. <laughs> no, dude, I mean, this is the thing. Please do, please do. Because if the bad guy's going to do it, yeah. That's the first thing I'm going to do is see what's available on the internet. That's actually one of the things I tell my guys to do when a customer calls and says, hey, what's their, what's their external profile to the internet? Because that's usually our entry point to, to start investigating. Yeah. So if they have RDP exposed and they just had a ransomware event, well, that saves me a heck of a lot of time having to reverse engineer everything. If I can see that RDP is compromised, well, maybe we'll start looking there first because yeah. that'll save us a huge amount of time. I would recommend everyone that's listening, go there and check your domains every week, like religion, and see what you see. Excellent. We'll put a link in the show notes for yeah, that. Yeah, that's absolutely. really interesting. So um, looking ahead over the next 12 or so months, are there any security trends that we expect to see or anything coming that we think is going to happen? So one thing I'll say is it's very, very difficult to give you what-if scenarios for the guy that's sitting on the front line every single day. Yeah. But what I will say is that I think uh, the current things that are hot are going to remain hot because I don't see any massive changes overnight. I am concerned about a couple of things. It's definitely time to beat up Intel, right, when it comes to all of their vulnerabilities at the moment. My concern is that this will just be a continual thing that we're going to have to deal with around all the vulnerabilities that are being found in uh, the, uh, the CPU protections. Uh, yeah. That worries me a little bit. Uh, why? Because I think this is Pandora's box mm. and it's just going to get worse before it gets better. And it's great that people are really starting to look at it. And I, th that's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is how the hell are we going to mitigate any of that? Because it, it's really difficult to swap CPUs in a cycle that makes any sense. And yep. to get real security, it's concerning. Where it really has me concerned is the VM worlds. Right, because it all comes down to CPU at the end of the day, and uh, both uh, Google and AWS and Microsoft in particular are spending a huge amount of resources to ensure that their VMs are protected against some of these CPU level attacks. But someday, sometime, sometime soon, uh, maybe they won't be able to, and maybe it'll be really, really difficult to actually implement a control inside of a hypervisor to be able to protect against this stuff. Mm. That worries me. That worries me because then, then it's uh, dominoes real quick. 
Because there have been, what, two, three? Six. Oh, six. Six or so variations. Yeah. So that worries me. I think we'll see more cloud infrastructure attacks. Yeah, I agree with um, that. And I think we'll also see more of the uh, application um, cloud attacks, you know. We've seen Office 365 attacks. We've seen them, you know, trying to go after infrastructure inside of 365. We'll see more of that. And what about IoT? Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting attacks is bad guys uh, breaking into home routers, right? And using yep. home routers yeah. as a vehicle to hide their ops, right? So there's at least one or two nation states that have been using, uh, uh, you know, home routers as a giant uh, VPN proxy mm. or a Tor proxy. And no one noticed for a while. So, you know, using home uh, routers that no one actually is monitoring, um becomes really really interesting right yeah it's not inside of your net it's right outside of your net if you will uh and uh very hidden because it's all the masses of users out there and uh, we'll see more of that i'm less worried about the tv you know turning you know sprouting arms and starting to attack you but it will spy on you and it sure. already is oh, yeah there's one with the cameras in it aren't there oh yeah mm-hmm. yeah sure we don't even really need to spy on people anymore if you think about how much information people are willing to put on social media these days around facebook linkedin not linkedin but probably less of a route but uh facebook and instagram yeah people are so willing to kind of publicize how well they're doing in life all those fantasy holidays and all the stuff that's going on but there's so much contextual information in the information that people are putting onto social media these days. And all it takes somebody quite clever. And a lot of these profiles are open. And even if you don't have them open and you have a privacy setting, you can still see mostly what people are doing. And I guess if you boil it down to a, a really, really basic level, if you're a local robber around a certain district, all you've got to look around is people that you know that live in the area. They post there in Heathrow Airport going on holiday for two weeks and you go and rob the house. Yeah, I mean, it's like... It, it's the olden days of sitting outside their house waiting to see if like the lights turn on or yeah, off. You don't need to do, <laughs> don't need to do that. that. Just do it from no. home. Don't you? I, I will say one other thing about uh, Internet of Things that I think is important is that, you know, we are finding more and more things being connected. I'm, I am quite concerned about automotive, healthcare, those two in particular. I'm, and we're actually spending a lot of time investigating those two worlds. Yeah. Um, why? Because there's direct... Uh, impact to life if the car all of a sudden turns itself off or does something funky puts itself in reverse or heads right for the barrier yeah these are things that could do some damage yeah right uh, or if your insulin pump decides to give you 100 percent more insulin than you need yeah that's a bad thing right yep. um, so these are the things that worry us especially around life so you're both users you may be it professionals but you're both users what do you what do you do to protect yourselves Away from work, how do you protect yourselves? <laughs> I don't even know where to start. I have, <laughs> I have like, uh, oh, uh, remember the movie Rain Man where he has like, uh, like uh, little procedures for everything in his life. Yeah, yeah that's me. There's, uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff I do for specific types of information, like banking, finance, for example. I have a full ritual that I follow that is, you know, pretty rigid. Uh, number one, I have a separate machine. I have separate VMs. I have uh, two-factor on absolutely everything. I validate every single transaction. I uh, ensure that uh, all my tax information is uh, protected at a physical and a logical level. I monitor my Social Security information routinely. Uh, anytime anyone queries any of my Social Security information, I get notified. Yeah. I, uh, I change my credit cards routinely. I don't use the same numbers very often. 
and I mix them up. Uh, I don't travel to specific countries. And when I travel to those countries, I don't bring electronics, mm. specifically borders that I know if uh, they confiscate my information that uh, I don't, uh, don't lose it. I never take my fan finance information overseas. I always leave it back in the United States. I do some, a lot of rigorous things. My social media footprint is very, 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 very small. Yeah. I keep it that way specifically. Out of everything you've just said, that's a bit I only do, really. My security at home is I, I generally just don't advertise myself externally very much. Even if the bank rings me, I'll ask them for a number and I'll ring them back or I'll ring them back on the main number and ask to be put through. But yeah, just my, my social footprint is, is next to nothing. I don't want people to know where I am, what I'm doing, where I live, all of that sort of stuff. What about day-to-day? What do you use to store passwords and things like that? Do you have a password manager? Do you think they're rubbish? I mean, I don't think they're rubbish. They're useful to some degree. Uh, we use something called PassBolt in our, uh, I, in our, you know, some of the RIT stuff that we do. And uh, we mostly only do two-factor. So we get rid of all the passwords. What about when you sign up for something on a website where you have to create a username and password? How do you, how do you kind of keep hold of that information? I don't typically mm, same what do you do i have one I have, time yeah one time or, or a mnemonic depending on what you're using yeah i'm the same if i'm if i'm purchasing anything i'll never create an account i'll just do it one time even if i'm purchasing regularly i'll just create one time purchase um dan i do think you win the award of most likely to be a um, a spy <laughs> <laughs> i don't carry financial information over borders uh, that's yeah. really funny i have seven passports <laughs> <laughs> i sadly only have one <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Um, Matt, do you want to give us a bit of a summary? Yeah, for sure. I think from a really, really high level, the, the things that I would take away from this is the importance to talk to people. Um, if you're ever receiving any information, if you're ever receiving any requests from anybody within your organization, irrespective of how urgent it is, I would always, always just clarify that is true. Um, and as Dan said, don't trust anybody. The other thing I definitely have taken away from this is the importance to break down barriers between different silos within an organization. Again, as we said at the beginning, we, we speak to a lot of customers that are going through or discussing transformation and adoption of cloud strategies. Um, and I think it's important to ensure that the, the two elements of the business that are going to be central to enabling that are talking and they're engaging together. So DevOps, the cool, funky young lot, and IT, the old, more perceived draconian lot, especially in security you're talking and it's and it and it's forms central to what you're trying to do security is so important moving forward it's it's the difference between making or breaking your organization whether it's from a ransomware perspective or i guess even from a legislation perspective and you know if if you're not doing the right things to protect the information that you hold on people you, you're going to get in trouble and it's going to cause you impact and i suppose one of the areas we haven't really discussed today is around I guess the the business impact of being hacked and you know what that will have on people's confidence in you as an organization to protect the information they're giving you because it's such a high area and if if people believe that you're not doing the right things by them they won't give you their information they won't be placing orders with you they won't be doing business with you and I think that's that's hugely important so again making security central to everything you're trying to do as a business irrespective of how agile you're trying to be security centers all of it
Well, Dan, Matt, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming down and, and having a conversation about the big security trends. Listeners, if there's anything in the show that has piqued your interest, or if you'd like to talk to someone at Softcat about anything that we've talked about in this episode, we'll put some contact details in the show notes. We'll also include some links about some of the stuff that we've talked about in the show. And uh, please make sure you click subscribe wherever you get your podcast. So you've been listening to Explain It from Softcat. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Bye.